Welcome to Everybody Has Stuff. I'm your host, Rachel. Today's episode is going to focus on addiction, so I'm going to dive into my story a little bit, as well as get into some issues that I've seen with the recovery community, treatment centers, and insurance. So stick around. Again, I'm Rachel, your host. Thanks so much for joining me. And today I really wanted to dive into the topic of addiction. I know this is a pretty deep topic uh, as far as emotionally, but also content-wise, there's a lot to discuss. A lot of different ways to look at addiction and it can be a little confusing or overwhelming. So I'm going to try to break it down to the best of my ability by using my experiences and my experiences only. I can't speak for anybody else. And again, just to preface this, I am not a licensed therapist. I am just speaking about me and what I've gone through and things that have helped me or that I've researched or heard in school. This is not meant to be taken as advice or suggestions. Now that that's out of the way, I'm going to just kind of give you a brief synopsis of my story with addiction. So I shared a little bit, some bits and pieces in the other episodes so far, that in the end of my active addiction, I was a heroin addict. Now, when I began using, I was about 12, maybe 13, when I was first introduced to drinking and cigarettes and pot. So that's how it started for me. And... I remember being in eighth grade and we had a dance to go to and I was extremely, extremely shy back then. Not sure of myself, timid, anxious, everything, because that also was the time that I was questioning my sexuality. So there's a lot of confusing things and trauma and a whole shitload of stuff, as I like to call it, going on and... I knew people, I had friends and classmates that were talking about drinking before going to the dance. So that's what I did. And I remember feeling like myself that first time. I didn't get that kind of excitement that most people talk about when they first use or drink. But I knew that I felt better than I did when I didn't drink or smoke pot. So I continued mainly more so with the weed. Wasn't much of a drinker, never really was. In high school, I definitely partied and drank then because everyone else was doing it. And just like I said in other previous podcasts, I am a chameleon, or I was back then anyways, and needed to fit in so badly that I would engage in activities that I didn't even really enjoy. And drinking was one of them. So I would go to these parties and smoke weed. I would drink, get obliterated. The one thing I will say is, though, that I knew even in high school that something was different about me when I noticed that I had no ability to limit myself as my peers could. I never did anything in moderation, ever. It was either all or nothing. So that's what I did. Looking back on it now, that was clearly a sign that was like my gut instincts trying to say hey something's wrong here look at yourself what's happening but instead I just shoved that shoved that little piece down and we'll deal with that later and so I really dabbled in pretty much anything in high school pills started Adderall Xanax 
some Percocet or Vicodin and ecstasy. That was the big thing when I was in high school. That, again, made me feel better than what I felt without a substance in my body. But there was no aha moment with that. I basically just would take whatever anyone would give me that would take me outside of myself. So they call that a trash can type of addict because it wasn't about any specific substance for me at that age. It was just, I don't want to feel what I'm feeling and deal with my reality. So I'm going to numb myself and I don't care what it is. Just give me it and give me more and more and more because addiction is, they call it the disease of more. No moderation. I don't know how to moderate anything in life and even in other things, not just with substances, with food, sex. I know I've talked about this before. So after high school, I got into a relationship with someone who was four years older than me and I was 17 at the time when I graduated high school and not because I'm like super smart, but because I was put into kindergarten like sooner. <laughs> um, but this girl was my savior. That's how I looked at her at the time, because at 17, I was still living in this household that was very toxic and I was just sitting in trauma and couldn't take it anymore. I don't know what would have happened if I didn't get out of the house then. Now, granted, the relationship was horrible. She was really the first girl that I had a serious relationship with, and this lasted on and off for like three years. We moved out. She moved me in to where she was living at the time. And then we got an apartment and it was like I was saved. She took me out of that hole that I was in and gave me a new life. Obviously, I thought that I was completely madly in love with this person, which I think at that time, I you know, I did love. Um, but the relationship was also toxic. It ended up being very explosive emotional there was a lot of alcohol involved and a little bit of physical and emotional abuse on both ends it wasn't you know all her and so I just replaced one toxic environment for another but I was out of my house so I was able to kind of rationalize it by seeing it from that point of view once that ended, I ended up back at my parents' house. So I was probably about 20 when I had to move back to my parents' house after this relationship had failed for the billionth time, and I was just done. And it was like I never left my parents. It was okay in the beginning when I first moved back in. It was functional. It was not as toxic in the beginning when I first moved there, I think because they wanted to pull me back in. Obviously, after being there for a while, the toxicity comes out again. And all this time, you know, I'm still cutting and engaging in self-harm behaviors, as well as using drugs. I progressed at this point to cocaine. And I couldn't attend college after high school because of this addiction to cocaine. I could barely even do anything other than spending all day getting high or looking for more. Never mind actually going to college and sitting in a classroom and trying to function in that type of environment. It was just not happening. So as time went on, I did end up going to my first treatment center in 2008 in Florida, of course. That's like the place to be for like, you know, rehab. And I loved it. 
I got down there and I felt welcomed. I felt like I belonged somewhere. It was my first exposure to a treatment center, uh, to the addiction field, and to the 12-step program. And I remember going to my first AA meeting and was like blown away. It was like, that was an aha moment. That was like, oh my God, I'm finally where I belong. These people get me. I'm not crazy. It was very validating, very welcoming and accepting. That experience felt very pure and helpful. And I remember talking about how I was going to be that person who was a first-time winner, as they say in AA. I was going to be the type of person who went to their first treatment center and stayed clean and sober and didn't relapse. I was like, I got this. I'm going to do this. I'm motivated. I'm going to be that person just on pride and ego alone. But obviously, addiction doesn't discriminate and it doesn't matter how motivated you might feel in the moment if you're not doing what you need to to support yourself in a journey of recovery what happens I end up meeting a girl because again relationships are addiction to me too at that point so I met this girl she's from DC and at the end of treatment I went back home but I only went back home because the girl that I liked decided to go back home. So we have this relationship long distance for, I don't know, a couple months probably. And, um, and that was also toxic too. Do you see the pattern? <laughs> There's always this like pattern of trying to fill that hole within me with outside things. But because I wasn't healthy, I was still attracting sick people. And I was attracted to sick people. It wasn't until I started to actually do some work on myself that I realized my worth and was no longer attracted to those type of people and they stopped being attracted to me. That belief that you, whatever you put in the universe is what you get back is so true. I used to think it was such bullshit, but you know, through my lived experiences, I've found that it really is true. You are who you hang with and what you put out is what you're going to get. And for so long, I was putting out so much negativity and trauma and my own toxicity and sickness that that's what I was attracting in return. I also remember at this first treatment center seeing for the first time this like weird competition that happens within treatment centers between the clients, like comparing each other's stories, comparing what type of substance they were addicted to, who was more addicted, who had a worse story or better story, I should say. They, they, it's just crazy to me that I would have people tell me like, oh, you're only here for cocaine. Try using heroin, like minimizing my addiction as if my own experience wasn't good enough. Like, I'm not even good enough as an addict. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> so it's ridiculous, but it happens. And I remember them people saying that to me. I mentioned this because I'm about to bring up something. But I get back home, and obviously this relationship doesn't work out with this girl. And so I happen to be going to this kid's house who was going to get me the cocaine. I get there and he's like, 
nah, I can't get you that. I don't like the guy's not answering the phone, but I can get you this. And he showed me this brown powder. And I'm like, what the fuck? Mind you, I've never seen heroin. I didn't know what the, like, I only knew bits and pieces of it. Matter of fact, at, at that point, what I thought of heroin was still like junky, piece of shit, scumbag. Those were the associations that I had created the narrative about heroin users. And here I am questioning whether or not I should use it because I can't get Coke. It's funny how in a time like that, just because you just can't imagine living life without something, some substance in your body to make you feel normal or numb, you will do anything for that to just feel normal. Even if that means kind of breaking your own morals and values and beliefs. Because I can guarantee you, I never ever thought that I would have ended up being a heroin addict. So I agree. I tell him that's fine. Get me the heroin. And I was so scared to shoot up because I didn't really know much about it. You know, I was worried about HIV. I was worried about dying, you know, getting an infection. So my fear led me to sniffing heroin for probably like two weeks. I hated it. Hated it. Hated it. I would get sick. I would vomit. It just, I didn't like the way it made me feel, but at the time, that's all I could get, and it did take the edge off somewhat, so I just kept doing it because I couldn't get what I really wanted, which was the Coke, and so eventually, after sitting day after day in this kid's room, watching him shoot up, I started to get curious. I started thinking to myself, well, he's doing it, and he's not dying, and I've seen him do it multiple times a day for two weeks now. So maybe that means that it's not as bad as everyone's making it out to be. My brain was doing anything it could to rationalize and justify shooting up heroin. Now, what I'm about to say is not me romanticizing it. It is to give a description to listeners on how it feels and what it did for me, which is why I got so hooked onto it. Besides, like, it causes a f actual physical dependence. So clearly I have this kid, you know, inject me with the heroin for the first time because I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. And I will never forget, never, that first high. It was incredible. It made me feel that feeling I had been looking for my entire fucking life. I even remember thinking to myself, this is it. This is it. This is exactly what I've been trying to find, this feeling. I, I have to have it. It is this euphoric feeling that just takes you outside of yourself and out of your reality. So, so needless to say, this is something that kept my interest. And most of you out there who are in recovery or using maybe, I don't know, can attest to the difference Moving from snorting something to injecting it, becoming an IV user, throws you into the addiction in a whole other way. It doesn't even matter what the substance is, just the route that it takes and how much quicker and the way it feels so different when you are using IV. It is hard to break that addiction. A lot of the high 
came from the anticipation. It came from me driving to the spot to meet the dealer, waiting for the dealer, getting the stuff, pulling over to do the stuff. Basically for me, the process of preparing to get high was an addiction as well. Setting the spoon up, getting the cap for the water, the cotton ball, the needle, like everything, like everything. That's why in the beginning, when you're first getting clean, you, a lot of things can trigger you. And for me, it did. I couldn't even look at a spoon without thinking of it. I couldn't look at a water bottle cap without thinking of shooting heroin because it had been so ingrained in me. It was associated with that so much that they were triggers still. I had to learn to sit with those feelings eventually and push through that and not let something like that send me back out to use. But it's not always that easy, especially when you're not doing any work on yourself to recover. It's just crazy because I remember being younger, I don't I don't know, maybe middle school or something like that, and I don't even know how or why I saw or was in this discussion about people shooting heroin, but I remember talking to my friend and just saying, I would never shoot dope. That's for junkies, and I'm not a junkie. And then years later, I have a needle in my arm. I'm sitting on the floor. I remember it clear as day because every once in a while in my addiction, I would get these moments of clarity where it was like I was snapped out of it, this like trance that I was in and could see everything for what it really was. It's like I could see the reality of what was going on. And I remember sitting on the floor that day as I'm shooting up with the needle in hand and I'm just like, how the fuck did I get here? How? I don't even understand it because I swore I would never do this to myself. I swore I would never get to this point. And here I am shooting up heroin in this dungy, dirty room with this person who's in me for the heroin and rides and money. And I just, I can't go to school. I can't do anything. I can barely hold a job most of the time. And it was just so depressing. You would think that maybe that would have been my cue to get better, right? <laughs> but no, it had the complete opposite effect. I just did more heroin to shut that part of my brain up and forget about it. And let me tell you, it's a totally different ball game shooting heroin. I would do things that I never, ever in a million years would have thought I would have been okay with doing to get what I needed. I wouldn't even do that kind of stuff for the other drugs, the pills, the coke, crack every once in a while that I was doing. Only for the heroin would I do these things that were just so wrong and against my morals and values and beliefs just so that I could feel that 10 second rush and then not out for the rest of the day so I can just pretend like I'm not doing what I'm doing to myself and that it's not real until I shoot up again a couple hours later. I don't really want to go into too much detail about it, but it just brought me to my knees. It brought me to a place that I never wanted to be in, that I used to look down on people who are in those types of situations I was in. And now I'm 
living them out. It's a really crappy feeling. And I think that that's what continued my substance use. Because if I got clean, it's like I'd have to face all of those horrible things I had been doing. Plus, like, going through withdrawal and having to deal with my family and my girlfriend at the time. It was just a lot. I've seen a lot in my addiction. I've done a lot in my addiction. And at the time, I had no idea how much it was going to help me later on in life. I honestly never thought I would be sitting here talking about this. I didn't even think I would live to see 30 because I had pretty much made up my mind and accepted the fact that I was going to die a junkie. I had accepted that this is my life. Clearly, I don't deserve better because I would have better if I was meant to have it. I'm just a bad person or there's something inherently wrong with me where all these horrible things are happening. And I can't imagine living life without some kind of substance to numb out my horrible life and my horrible reality that I was never going to amount to anything more than being a junkie. And I was never going to pursue anything that I had dreamed of. That's a real shitty feeling and a shitty realization. So for me to be sitting here telling you this story is incredible. I'm just like beyond grateful. I really truly am. And I share my story because hopefully I'm able to reach someone who can understand whether you're in recovery or if you are actively using, you don't have to stay that way. And I really thought that that was my fate. I really didn't give myself enough credit to believe in myself that I could get out of it. I also didn't give myself enough credit to believe that I could actually live a life where I was happy without some artificial dopamine, serotonin, opiate creator or enhancer rather. I was ready to lay down and die and take it for what it was. I guess because I had lived pretty much my whole life in misery and depression and wanting to die and agony, just complete and utter agony. I had just, I was ready to succumb to the disease of addiction. I thought, at least I'm going to go out doing something that makes me feel good. But I'm so, so, so grateful and happy that that didn't happen. Unfortunately, I do know a lot of people who have passed from this and it's heartbreaking. It doesn't get any easier every time I hear about someone I know who's died from their addiction. One of my good friends who I knew from Sober Living, she passed about two years ago from an overdose. And I took that really hard. That one, for some reason, really hurt. And I think it's because the last time I talked to her, she was looking for a place to stay. And she was in active addiction. Mind you, I had maybe two years at that time, maybe less than that, not even two years yet. And I never answered her. I never texted her back or called her back because I was trying to do the right thing and protect my wife and I, because my wife's also in recovery too. And I just didn't feel like it was fair to take someone in who I didn't know was going to steal, was going to act in a certain type of way or could have died in my house. I just couldn't be a part of it. And when she passed, I was devastated. It's still a very emotional thing to think about because I just think, what if? Why me? Why did I survive and all these people I know are died? 
what makes me any better than them? They should be living too. And it makes me sad that they'll never get to live out their dreams or goals or see their potential. And so that's why I try my best to not take this for granted because it could have been me. It probably should have been me a couple of times and I was just saved for whatever reason. And I think what keeps me going is making sure I have that purpose, that I find meaning in my suffering, which is why I started this podcast. And I also do other things too, but it's a way for me to give back. It's a way for me to help even just one person with my experiences and the information that I'm talking about. That's the main thing here is it's not even about me. It's about you guys. I'm living now a life that could have been someone else's, but it's not someone else's. It's mine. I was lucky enough to get through. And I believe now that that's because there's a purpose here for me to give back and to help others from my suffering, from my experiences to not let it go in vain, as I've talked about before. So anyways, getting back to my story, before I move on, I was in and out of treatment centers. I was in and out of psychiatric facilities. And I've been to countless IOPs, intensive outpatient, outpatient therapy and programs, partial hospitalization programs. I'm a frequent flyer at Butler Hospital in Rhode Island or I was at least, and I've been on methadone, I've been on Suboxone, I've tried all these different things, I've had all these experiences. I went to sober living this last time that I got clean. I had had three years from 2012 to 2015, but I wasn't really working on myself. So basically I was just dry, like, and all my issues and my problems were still there. Taking away the drug is just merely scratching the surface. So for me, when I finally got clean again, I decided to do something different. Now, mind you, I went kicking and screaming, but I went to sober living. And I want to really talk about this experience because it might help someone else. All my other attempts at recovery, I refused to go to sober living or to an Oxford house or anything like that because I always thought that I was better. And I also think, you know, my anxiety played a role too. I had pretty bad, I still do have pretty bad social anxiety. And so living in a house full of a bunch of people that I didn't know was really anxiety provoking, but I was willing to go. And I originally only went because my fiance at the time, who is now my wife, said that I wasn't allowed to come home. My parents said I wasn't allowed home. I didn't have my car at that time, so I would have been on the street. And I refused to go to that because I knew I would never stay clean. And I really wanted to stay clean, even though I didn't really at that time. But deep down, I did because I don't think I would have been willing to go to sober living. So I go to this house. I'm like, okay, 30 days. I can make it through 30 days and then I'm out. And I'll go back and live with my fiance. Never in my wildest dreams would I have thought that I would have been there for like 16 months, I believe. Something like that. Never. <laughs> because I was in a house full of like 13 women, 14 including myself. And as you can imagine, women in early recovery, there was a lot of fucking drama. <laughs> like a lot of stuff happening. But there was also the sense of community. There was also this sense of friendship 
there was also this support and it made going to meetings fun and meetings were never fun before which is why I never stuck around it was hard for me to make friends in meetings before by myself not knowing anyone because I have social anxiety so I would sit way in the back and then just like come late and leave early type of thing so I didn't have to talk to anybody but that's why I never got better but being in this house full of these women who are trying to recover they even if they weren't fully working a program or completely wanted to stay clean they were still putting one foot in front of the other because one they had to because we had to get meeting lists signed in order to live in this house and we had drug screens regularly but regardless it was like social hour we would get dressed up get ourselves looking nice go to the meeting they would go for all the guys and like i just went because my other friends were there that i knew from rehab or from iop and it made it enjoyable yes in the beginning i was socializing i was talking i wasn't really paying attention in the meetings but it got me there it kept me wanting to go because for me I think this time around what worked was that I had a group of people my age or at least close to my age in recovery and in early recovery. That's so important to have that support network. I didn't ever think that I could have fun in recovery. I didn't know if I would ever feel like I did when I was on drugs before it got, you know, bad. But when I was in that honeymoon phase of drugs, that's what I was looking for. And there was nothing else when I was sober that would give me that same kind of a high feeling, like that dopamine rush. But this did. The social interactions did. And I was doing things and putting one foot in front of the other as well and had a sponsor and was doing step work and speaking at treatment centers. I was in service. I was speaking up in meetings. I was helping newcomers. I was all up in it. And it worked for me. It helped me. It honestly did. And it also helped that I had those girls to go back to every day, like in the house, to talk to and vent and laugh and joke. I started to see that, hey, I think I can do this. I don't think that I don't think my life will be so miserable being clean now. I see that I can have fun in recovery and I can still feel happy. And feeling happy, clean, meant that I didn't need to put anything into my body to make me feel good because I was already feeling so good. And then after time of doing work on myself, building that self-love and the self-respect and self-worth, I got to a point where even when I was triggered for whatever reason, I could rationalize and challenge my thoughts with rational thoughts about why I wasn't going to pick up because I had worked so hard to get to where I was and started to love myself. And I wasn't willing to lose that feeling because I had been trying to find it for so long. I then went back to school. And that also gave me more meaning and purpose. And I started seeing how competent I was, that I was capable, that I wasn't this dumb person who was meant to use drugs. I was smart, actually, more than I thought I was. And I'm a good friend. I'm funny. I have a lot to give to people. I have a lot to offer. I'm loving. I'm kind. I learned to challenge these core beliefs. Clearly, there's still work to do because I find myself sometimes tapping into those negative core beliefs or the narrative that I had before feeling better about myself. But at least I catch it now. I would have fed into it years ago 
and be like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You are a piece of shit. That's why you should just fucking get high. Fuck it. You can't do this anyways. But now it's like, oh, I would really love to get outside of myself right now because I'm super stressed out. But one, I don't feel like putting in the work to go get drugs. And two, I have worked so fucking hard to where I am being in grad school, having this house with my wife, getting married, like doing I did all these things I've been doing so many things that I thought I could never do and I'm not willing to let go of that no substance to me is worth all that I have gained in recovery now enough about me what I really want to dive into that's more important than my story are my experiences of addiction treatment so first I just kind of want to talk about is addiction a disease or is it a choice is it both there's a lot of different theories and research on this topic and for a long time i really believed the medical model of addiction and the genetics and the biology piece the predisposition and i still do to a certain degree but as time has gone on and i've done my own research and listened to other speakers about this topic or ted talks i realized maybe it's not a medical disease maybe Epigenetics plays a role here where this DNA of the predisposition for addiction is existing, but maybe the certain environment that this person is growing up in plays a role in whether or not the person develops an addiction, a substance use problem. I've been listening to this speaker talk about their own theories of addiction. His name's Gabor Mate. I think I pronounced his last name wrong last time I spoke about him, but he has a background in family practice and he talks a lot about addiction, but he specialized in childhood development and trauma and the lifelong impacts it has on people physically, mentally, and emotionally. So when he talks about addiction, he talks about how these environmental triggers, such as trauma in childhood, can spark this DNA predisposition to addiction. And this would make sense for people, you know, who are in families where they don't see addiction in anyone else. And there's that one member who does have it. Well, it's because maybe they all do have that DNA predisposition, but maybe that one person in the family had a traumatic childhood and the others didn't. So it didn't trigger that issue. He also talks about why he doesn't believe addiction is really a genetic disease, not completely just a genetic disease anyways, because he mentions how he talks about how indigenous people never saw this genetic piece of addiction and that if addiction was a disease based on genetics that this would have gone back as far as then when they would use their substances medicinally and holistically to cure things and help with health issues but we didn't see that and his standpoint is that genes don't change that drastically over that amount of time. It's just not possible. 
So basically, he's saying that he doesn't believe that it's completely genetics. He doesn't believe fully in just that medical model. I think, too, it's hard because I really bought into that idea for a long time because, to me, it made sense. It still does. And it's better. It sounds better. It doesn't sound as incriminating as stating that it's a choice. Because when you imply that addiction is a choice, you're basically stating something is wrong with you morally, which is why you're engaging in this behavior. You know right from wrong, but you're still choosing to do it anyways because you're just a scumbag. So yes, of course, to me, thinking of addiction as a disease is a better way for me to handle it. There's also things like risk factors and resiliency factors that play a role and whether or not a person has access to the resources they need to get help. And a lot of people in these underserved communities don't have access to the resources they need or the resources that are available aren't of quality. Now this leads into the next aspect that I wanted to talk about, which is treatment for addiction. So what is involved in the treatment for addiction? For those of you who don't know, there are different types of treatment. There's residential, inpatient, partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient, and outpatient therapy. Now, residential, that's usually where you see that 30-day treatment, sometimes more depending on how good your insurance is or if you're paying out of pocket and can afford it. Inpatient is more in a hospital setting, and you're not really always there for that long. Whenever I was in inpatient, I was there for like two weeks. Basically, you're just detoxing, and then they send you on your way. And detox is another type of treatment too, which most of us have to go through before actually going to rehab. You got to get yourself rid of those substances uh, and make sure you're doing so with medical assistance so that if something happens, you are safe. And then partial hospitalization programs are where you go Monday to Friday from let's say like 9 to 3 p.m. And that happens for maybe like three months. And then you step down to IOP, the intensive outpatient, which is maybe three days a week from nine to three. And then eventually you move down to outpatient, just OP therapy, where you're either coming in once or twice a week for just like a short group session and an individual session with your therapist. And then you'll get to the point where you're just coming once a month for an individual session with the therapist until you, you know, and you kind of just keep stepping down until you are terminated from treatment because you've reached a point where they feel you can stop coming, where you don't need that level of treatment anymore. My experiences in these different levels of care have been pretty interesting and I've had some really good experiences. I've had some really poor experiences, some in between and I found that what I noticed besides just insurance companies sucking at giving the proper amount of time needed to get treatment is that a lot of the treatment centers are advertising as being a co-occurring place or dealing with dual diagnoses. And what I mean by that is they're advertising that they can not only treat the addiction but treat any other mental illnesses or mental health problems that are simultaneously playing a role with the addiction 
they kind of are like playing off each other. The problem with that is that most of the treatment centers I've been to, at least at all different levels of care, who are stating that they provide care for the other issues besides the addiction is not true. A lot of the times it's a tactic to pull people in, but you know, once you get there, it was just all a bunch of empty promises. I've actually only been to one treatment center where they tried to address my problems holistically and not just focusing on the addiction. But the problem with that was my insurance only covered two weeks of this residential program. Two weeks. That's all. As if two weeks can solve 30-something years of issues. <laughs> or 20-something because I was in my 20s then. But it was just ridiculous. Like, finally, I found a place that was doing what they should have been doing, and then I got kicked, not kicked out, but, like, I couldn't stay there if I couldn't pay out of pocket. It's just really heartbreaking to think of how many people aren't getting the right treatment and might never, and they continue to have trouble maintaining their sobriety or well-being because they're not getting the proper care they need. Usually, you know, when you go into treatment for addiction and they say that they deal with co-occurring disorders, you actually will just continue to focus on the addiction. Sometimes they might throw in some group sessions on grief or trauma. They might attempt here and there to pull out some of the other issues. But the problem is that they don't really go deep enough to rip that root out. They're not getting to the root of the problem the root of the addiction, which isn't the addiction at all. The addiction is just a symptom of something much deeper, and it's usually trauma. The other problem is that besides the insurance companies sucking and not covering enough time, because let's get real, 30 days is not shit. Let's say you used for 30 years. You think 30 days is going to undo all that shit? No. You didn't get to your worst overnight. That took time for you to develop in that way and to have these issues. So what makes people think that 30 days is like the cure? I always thought it was so funny because I would come out of treatment and my family and friends who weren't, you know, addicts would act like I was supposed to be cured, like that I was supposed to be fixed in those 30 days. Does that make any sense to anyone else? <laughs> There's no way that 30 days does anything because the first couple of weeks that you're even there, are you still clearing your head? Even if you went to detox before you enter rehab, your brain is still adjusting and like getting all that shit out of your body. And also not to mention because now you don't have the substance in there, your serotonin and dopamine, all of it's fucked up. Because you had artificial substances that were helping to boost them up or bring them down. So, and it takes your brain time to work through all of that and kind of get back to some state of homeostasis. But regardless of the insurance issues, another problem in addiction treatment is that the treatment itself is not tailored to the individual. Addiction isn't a cookie cutter problem, so there's not a cookie cutter solution. It's not a one size fits all type of thing. 
unfortunately. I wish that it was. It'd be much easier, but it's not. There needs to be more individualized approaches. I know that this is easier said than done when you have like 60, 70 clients that you're dealing with, but there's got to be a solution here. There's got to be a way to incorporate more of an individualized approach to clients and maintaining the ability to not get burnt out. I feel like rehab, especially treatment for addiction, has become this factory. That's what it feels like. It's like we have these people come in, treat them for 30 days. Okay, you're done. You're out. Next, come in, treat them for 30 days. Oh, you're done. Out. Next. It's like this cycle. It's, but nothing is changing because if it was, if the treatment for addiction was working well, there wouldn't be so many people still struggling and dying. And these treatment centers don't see this or they see it and they just don't care, I guess, or it takes too much work and time, money and effort to change things up. I don't know what it is, but what you're doing isn't working. So it's time to switch things up. Let's hone in on this program that we have and tweak things a little bit to figure out what's working and what's not working. Obviously, rehabs themselves and the programs and treatment centers themselves are not the cause for an overdose. They don't make someone overdose, but a client's chances of recovering and surviving and not dying depends on what type of treatment they're getting, the proper care. The treatment itself can't keep them clean, but if they're getting quality treatment, they might build some self-efficacy and see that they deserve more or if they're being provided the proper resources for aftercare for when they leave treatment and not having to figure things out on their own like okay you're done 30 days here's your bags peace call this IOP program and yeah good luck maybe attend some AA that's pretty much what it's like because they're just ready for the next round of clients to come in the aftercare needs to be improved there needs to be better follow-up for when these clients leave. There needs to be not only aftercare set up for outpatient to continue therapy and other treatments, but also providing them with proper resources. Does this client have anywhere to live when they leave treatment? No? Okay, so you need to do everything in your power to get them into sober living, Oxford House, into assisted living. I don't know whatever it is, low-income housing. Obviously, the client has a role here too because they have to agree to it. But I feel like when I was in treatment, I never saw the person who was in charge of the aftercare really going above and beyond. It was like meeting the bare minimum. And that's where one of the problem lies is we can't just treat addiction with bare minimum treatment. Addiction is such a powerful thing that clearly it's not working. Or we wouldn't still be seeing such an epidemic. We need to set them up with maybe Medicaid, food stamps, general assistance. I don't know. Whatever they need. And we can offer it and help them get it set up. And whether or not the client follows through and actually does what they're supposed to 
is not our problem. We're not in control of that, but at least we have it set up for them so that they don't have to do all this work on their own because guess what? When you leave treatment and you've just talked about so many things, it was like you were living in a bubble for 30 days outside of reality. So then when you leave treatment, you're just plopped back into society and expected to exist like nothing ever happened. It doesn't work like that. You, you need help. We need help. And the issue is that when the person leaves treatment and they quote unquote fail or relapse, it's never due to shitty treatment. It's never due to not enough resources given. It always goes back to the client completely and like, well, you just didn't want to get better. Maybe you just can't be helped. That's what we do. We shame and we guilt people. Unfortunately, relapse is a part of addiction. It doesn't have to be for everybody, but for most of us, we have experienced relapses. And we say this in recovery, right? That this is part of addiction recovery is the possibility of relapse, yet we continue to guilt and shame people for when it happens. Instead of, oh, you did it again. I can't do this anymore with you. You're a piece of shit. You're never going to mount that. Instead of doing that whole thing with the person, how about it's what went wrong? What was happening? What triggered you? What do you feel like you're missing? What do you need? How can I help? Those are the types of talks and discussions and questions that should be going on rather than this put down and shaming. Because guess what? When we know that that's what the reaction is going to be after you've relapsed, that's why the addiction keeps going. That's why a lot of people don't stop sooner and get, try to get back into treatment or to get help and to recover again. It's because they are so afraid of being put down and asking for help because of the crazy reactions that people have, the overreactions and the insensitive and inaccurate reactions, the judgmental piece of this, worrying about what others are going to say or feel or think about you keeps people sick because we, even in the 12-step community, we guilt and shame people and we judge them for going through a process that's supposedly natural to recovery, like relapse. Like we, Why do we keep saying that? Why have we created that notion? If you're going to be hypocritical and turn around when it happens and talk shit to the person and make them feel like shit, it's extremely insensitive. And that in itself is a trigger. Because then that's where the addict starts saying to themselves, see, you are a fuck up. See, you disappointed them again. They hate you. They don't want you in their life. You might as well just keep using because nobody gives a fuck about you. That's where we go in our minds when we're judged for relapsing. Another issue is that in addiction treatment, they don't realize that everyone is in different stages of change. And for those who don't know what I'm talking about, there are five, now maybe six, because they added one, stages of change in the realm of addiction. The first one is pre-contemplation. This is usually when a person does not believe that they have a problem. Either they haven't had any adverse consequences because of their behavior, or they're just in denial. They don't see what they're doing is an issue at this point. The next one is contemplation. At this point, the person's realized they have a problem. They feel like they might want to go forward and make changes, but that they're not sure they can fully commit to it. 
they're able to learn and be more receptive to these potential consequences of their behavior and the different treatment options that are available to them. But they haven't committed yet. They're just thinking about it, but at least they're acknowledging it. The third stage of change is preparation. And this is when someone is ready to commit and take action. They've gone through and met maybe a therapist or some healthcare professional. They've had an assessment done, an intake done to decide what treatment modality or what level of care of treatment they might need. This leads to the fourth stage of change, which is action. The action is exactly what it says. The person is putting in the effort to make some changes in their life. This is maybe going to detox, going to rehab. This is going to individual and group therapy. This is beginning to go to 12-step programs or whatever they believe in. In this stage, they're also developing healthy coping skills to deal with stress and triggers that's going to help them to maintain their recovery which goes into stage five, which is maintenance. This is where the client is able to live a substance-free life for an extended period of time. It's where they've gotten into this routine of recovery and what works for them, whether it's you know going to work, then going to the gym, going to AA. They're doing what they need to do to maintain recovery actively, and they've been doing it for quite some time. Now, sometimes... Obviously, like I just said, relapse can be a part of recovery. Sometimes they have termination in as a stage of change as well, which is the point where a person with substance use disorder no longer feels threatened by their substance of choice. Those are the stages of change. And everyone comes into treatment at different stages. So again, treatment needs to be more individualized. And you can't assume that while one person is in contemplation that the other one is also or someone's in action but the other one is still in contemplation like there's just you can't assume everyone's at the same place you have to meet the client where they're at and I've seen this from working in the field myself the other issue that I really want to talk about as far as treatment goes is treatment is not I said not the same as recovery. This is a thing that people get mixed up on a lot. They are not one and the same. I don't know where and how those two got combined or mixed up or whatever, but they're just, they don't belong together. When someone is in treatment, that's what they're getting. They're supposed to be getting help. They're supposed to be getting treatment that involves therapy, whether it's group or individual, acupuncture, I don't know, Reiki, horse equine therapy, psychoeducation groups, trauma groups, all the things that you're supposed to do in treatment is what treatment is. Treatment is not meant for shoving 12-step programs down people's throats. Don't get me wrong. I've shared. AA saved my life. It has helped in so many ways and I still attend meetings and engage in the 12-step program when I can and however I can and in a way that works for me. But as I've gotten better and I'm clean and I'm in school and learning about different things and I'm just 
having my own experiences as a counselor intern and seeing things for what they really are on the opposite side of things, I have seen how hard 12-step programs are shoved down clients' throats and more so how this can impact the client's ability to stay clean. Again, this isn't cookie cutter. 12-step is not the only way to recover. And while someone is in treatment, they don't need to be focused in on that kind of stuff. They need to be going into their deep-rooted issues like trauma and working all of those things out before focusing on getting a sponsor, going to meetings, being forced to read 12-step literature or material. I know some of you might disagree with that, and some of you who work in the field might also disagree with that. But this is just what I've seen is not helping. And I'm not saying to not include or offer clients that option to attend outside 12-step meetings as like extracurricular activities or something, but don't force it. We've put these 12-step programs on this pedestal, I feel like, and made it an all or nothing black and white. It's this way or no way. If you don't do this, you're going to relapse and die. Like what? <laughs> that doesn't even make sense. And then we wonder why people can't stay clean. Because this is what happens. They are told that if they don't go to AA or NA or some other 12-step program, that they're going to fail, they're going to relapse, they're never going to get clean and stay clean, and that they need it basically to survive. Now, when they get into recovery and they are attending these meetings, if they feel like this isn't a good fit for them for whatever reason, and we keep telling people that if they don't like it or they're not doing what they're supposed to, in the program, then they're going to relapse. Or when and if someone relapses who is in the program, we tell them it's because they didn't work the program the right way. Quote, unquote, right way. Like, what? <laughs> it really blows my mind. And, you know, I really did buy into all that stuff. I believe in some of it still to a certain degree, but I don't agree with the black and white thinking. I don't agree with that all or nothing, like, you either do it all the way this way or you're a failure and that's why you relapsed. It's your fault because you didn't work the program properly while you lapsed. How about it was just that maybe some things in the program doesn't fit for that person and they need a different way, a different approach to find recovery. And I believe the reason why the 12-step program has become this staple in treatment centers and for recovery is because the majority of clinicians or counselors that work in the field are in recovery themselves and are in a 12-step program. When you have people who are in recovery working at a treatment facility, they're going to push their beliefs. And it's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that they're wrong for believing what they believe. Whatever worked for them worked, and that's great. That's valid. But when it gets to the point of that's all you talk about with your client and you make it out to be the only way that recovery is possible, you're doing your client a disservice because you are putting them in this box, which ends up making them feel bad or incapable of getting clean if they don't fit into or like the 12-step program. And that's wrong. We need to be offering like other options. 
people in recovery working in the field, and I know because obviously I'm in recovery and I've worked in the field, and when I was extremely involved in AA, I did the same thing. I talked it up. I talked about how great it is and this and that and the other thing, which isn't a bad thing to share your experience, but when it's to the point of you're almost trying to brainwash a person into believing your way or the highway, then that's a problem, especially because they're in treatment to get help for their deep-rooted issues, not debate 12-step program shit and to be judged if it's not for them. This is the problem with having people in recovery working at treatment centers if they haven't done enough work on themselves. Because someone who's done enough work on themselves would know and recognize that it's okay if someone wants to recover in a different way. It's okay if someone needs a different way to recover. There's definitely a lot of things that need to be improved when it comes to treatment for addiction. No matter what level of care it is, it doesn't matter if it's you know residential or if it's intensive outpatient or just seeing a therapist once a week. It doesn't matter. There needs to be changes because the standard of treatment for addicts right now is not working. And instead of staying with status quo, things need to be shaken up a bit and alternatives need to be taken into account and new approaches need to be utilized. And letting go of this old way of thinking that 12-step is the only thing that works. Because it's not, it, period, it's just not. There's plenty of research to show that there's other ways that people recover and the outcomes are similar to AA. And there's people who don't even utilize a 12-step program or any other type of alternative like smart recovery or something like that who still get clean and live happy, productive lives. It's just so different for everybody. And we need to stop putting addicts in boxes and then on top of it after you've placed them in the box making them feel guilty or judging them for needing to learn in a different way or needing to recover in a different way I hope that this made sense (laughs) this is part one of the addiction discussion in the next episode I'm going to kind of go over my experiences in 12 step what worked what didn't things that I think could be better in 12-step programs as well as other alternatives to 12-step programs and I'll also touch on ways that we can improve treatment for addiction so stay tuned and we'll finish this up in part two 